Welcome to Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts in a variety of fields to uncover the systems and patterns that help us to conceptualize and reconceptualize our world. I'm Julie Stern, founder and principal facilitator for Learning That Transfers. And I'm Trevor Elio, English language arts lead for Learning That Transfers. This podcast uses our mental model as a sense-making tool through acquiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships to unlock new situations. Our guests identify three to five concepts at the heart of their field, and we discuss how those play out in a variety of settings. You can find out more about our work, including our online courses and other professional learning offerings at learningthattransfers.com. Joining me on this week's episode is our new elementary specialist, Jessica Matei. Jess and I were lucky enough to chat with Dr. Maya Daudry, Director of Literacy for NWEA and a powerful advocate for students' right to read and write. Over the course of our dialogue, Maya takes us through the rich tapestry of her career, sharing insight into her experiences leading initiatives focusing on everything from state-level curriculum projects to middle school yearbook programs. The obvious connected tissue between Dr. Daudry's variety of educational entry points, though, is a clear devotion to student agency and empowerment. So um, I completely agree that the, our role is to prepare them to do that and to make the world they occupy a better place for them and the people that come after them. And so for me, it means whatever your next step is post-secondary, you should have the agency and the sense of self-efficacy that you could walk into that space of that new space of learning, open up the text and say, I may not know this, but I know how to conquer this and I know how to figure this out. In addition to having some in-depth discussion around literacy practices and research, a special bonus for this episode is the wealth of practical advice shared about the right and wrong ways to approach disciplinary literacy instruction and leadership in schools. Whether you're a teacher or a superintendent, there's plenty here for you to enjoy. Joining us this week is Dr. Maya Daudry, the Director of Literacy for NWEA. So Maya, can you tell us a little about yourself and um, just kind of share your journey to becoming a literacy specialist? I would love to. I'm so excited to be here and talking to both of you tonight. So I, I'm at NWEA now, and this is just where the seat I'm sitting in now, but it certainly is not the beginning of my journey. I started off as a middle school and high school English teacher in Detroit, which is where I grew up. Um, I've always loved to read and write. So when I graduated from undergrad, I became a reading teacher in, um, in a school in Detroit. Loved it. Then I moved to a high school in a suburb thereof where I continued to teach. At some point I got really tired of winter. Um, so I moved <laughs> to Las Vegas when I was 27 and I taught uh, middle school English and reading and journalism for about five years. And then I left the classroom, but I was still in CCSD in the fifth largest district in the country and became a district-wide literacy specialist for secondary. So I was on a team of three and we were responsible for all literacy decisions, ELA decisions for the entire district. Lots of really big, complex, interesting problems to figure out. While I was there, I started my doc work at Vanderbilt and halfway through my doc work, I moved to Nashville. Um, I was at I was in Vanderbilt, so I moved to Tennessee, and I became the statewide literacy coordinator, and I was responsible for literacy for the state of Tennessee, and when I got there, I told my boss she got me on the bait and switch because she hired me to deal, deal with literacy, and on the second day, she told me I was in charge of creating the entire statewide literacy assessment because the legislature had just oh, wow. voted. No, I'm so for, this is like day two. I'm, this is not even a joke. She said, oh yeah, our legislature- It's a nice welcome present. 
<laughs> participate in the consortium. So your job is to figure out how to create a state summative assessment from zero. Here's the blueprint. And I said, what's a blueprint? So I was the state literacy <laughs> coordinator um, while I finished my doc work. When I left, when I graduated, I left the department because I got a job in uh, DC working for Achieve, which was a multi-state policy organization, like a think tank. And I was the director of literacy. I was there for a couple of years. Then I left, went to Odell Education, a small outfit that writes high school literacy curriculum. And I was the executive director of professional learning and, co and content. And I led a team of writers and built their PL system from the ground up and created some of the most interesting and innovative work of my career, these uh, interdisciplinary writing units for science and social studies. When I left there, one day I was at work happy, really happy minding my business. An old colleague from Achieve, uh, Dr. Ted Cole called me and said, do you like your job? And I said, I like my job. He goes, I love my job. You should come to NWEA. And I thought, I don't want to move again. I, I like where I am. But after I met the team at NWEA, I decided um, it would be a, another good leap. So what I tell people is I have been thinking about the same thing for 20 years, which is how <laughs> to get children to be more literate. I've just thought about it from different entry points. So teacher, district leader, state leader, nonprofit, now um, nonprofit, but vendor assessment company. So I really have been thinking about the exact same thing for a very long time. So I'm super excited to be here. So all of that points to why you are the perfect guest for our podcast. So each week we ask our um, participant to think of some of the key concepts that characterize whatever field or um, discipline or domain that they are interested in. So considering you've been thinking about literacy for 20 years from five, six different entry points all over the country, I, I am very curious, um, and I'm, I'm sure that our audience is too, for you to share what are those key concepts that you feel like kind of speak to um, the heart of your work and, and literacy more broadly? So right now, I would say the big three things I would say are critical to improve student literacy in this country is a focus on student agency, disciplinary literacy, and going back to the basics and attention to text, like what we put in front of children to read every single day. Um, across the school day. So those those things I think are really important to get to improve um, student outcomes in literacy. And I can also tell you how to move across the country different times. So if you want tips on that, <laughs> that, that can be bonus content. We'll have to we'll make a Patreon. That'll be it'll be available there. Um, so before you joined us, uh, Jessica and I were, were chatting about some of the epic Twitter threads um, that were sort of like the, the, ent the entry, my entry point into finding out about you and your work. And uh, particularly the one that really struck me was um, when you started sharing a little bit about disciplinary literacy, because um, that's something that with our work with learning the transfer is really passionate about. And it's something that is, I, I think, kind of a rising tide curricular wise and policy wise, but it, it's not something that everyone is familiar with, at least in what it actually is as opposed to how it's kind of been presented in years past. So could you talk a little bit about your perspective and experience with disciplinary literacy? Yes, I'd love to. So number one, critical, important, um, really, really, really important. So I cannot overemphasize how important it is for students to be literate in and for the disciplines, especially as they move up throughout the grades. When I first started teaching, I don't even know if the term disciplinary literacy 
was around. It was reading in the content areas. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what people talked about. And I remember it, and it was boiled in my teacher experience. It was boiled down to like a handful of strategies, like teach kids text structure mm-hmm. and um, practice these particular strategies. And then they'll be able to read in science. And I remember like for years we would like do this. And what would happen is I would go to like a district PD or a school PD and there would be somebody from the reading department or the English department talking to a room full of science and social studies teachers and English teachers and saying, so we are the experts and you just do what we say do. And then that presenter would leave. And then I was an ELA person. There was a lot of uh, hubris. And of course we know how to get kids mm-hmm. to read in science. And so um, the science and social studies people would look at us and go, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's in two words. Yeah, no. That yeah, no. Nope. <laughs> um, and there was always just this tension and, and it was felt, I mean, I felt it on both sides, right? So as an English teacher, like I knew the importance of getting kids to read. And I felt like my colleagues weren't working with me and my colleagues, I found out later, felt like they were being imposed on, which they were, to be fair. There was a lot of a lot of imposition happening um, from from one side to the other. Um, But intuitively, this was like 20 years ago, I really just felt. You don't just read in English like that just didn't make sense to me. Right. So I started off undergrad in the School of Engineering, which nobody believes, but I did. I was admitted to the School of Engineering. And my first year, I took a lot of science courses. You know what they had? Books. I mean, like they had. Hold on a second. (laughs) Like lots of books. And I remember like struggling so hard to make sense out of a chemistry book, even though I, I got, I think either an A or B in high school chemistry. And I had a really good teacher, but I had no idea how to read that chemistry text in a way that made meaningful sense. And then I remember sitting with a calculus text it could have, it should have been written in hieroglyphics. Honestly, it probably was like, <laughs> I could not make sense of this text, even though my whole life I've been quote unquote, a good reader. And so as a teacher, I just was like, but this doesn't make sense. Like so much of what I read and I'm an avid reader, but so much of what I read isn't, aren't, don't reflect the kind of things I read in ELA, right? Like I read history a lot. I read, oh, Um, I read lots of books about like science and the body and like nature. Those are science texts. So um, even like 20 years ago, it just did not make sense to me that the only place that secondary students were expected to read and expected to produce high quality writing was in English. And so I remember um, I worked, I was working at at a middle school in Las Vegas and my science colleague, really nice guy came to me. And we were supposed to, I don't know, the district was doing like content area literacy. And it was honestly boiled down to like five strategies. And so we were sitting and talking. And I just remember I had this aha moment when he said to me, don't they know how to do this? Don't they learn how to do this in your class? And I said, read chemistry? (laughs) No. (laughs) And he said, well, the, he actually started off by complaining. These kids can't read, they can't read, they can't write. And so he just was like, well, don't, he, he was like a foregone conclusion. Like I hadn't done my job well because they didn't know how to read his eighth grade science book. And I said to him, I said, let me be as clear as I can. There is a 0% chance. And I do mean zero. 
they will learn how to read for science in English. That's, that, that's just not gonna happen. But that conversation, this was well over a decade ago, really struck with me because my colleague, and like I said, we had a very good relationship, very well-intentioned. And he was really perplexed, like, you're not doing your job. These kids can't read science. Therefore, you haven't done your job as an English teacher. And I was thinking, well, I have real content in English that I need them to learn. So I can't teach them how to read yours. So that conversation just never left me. And then like fast forward a couple of years, I worked at the district office and I tell people, I have done this wrong so many ways. Like <laughs> I have failed so many times where I was the reading specialist. I had a master's degree in reading. And so I really did go to my science and social studies colleagues like, um, you will, this is how you teach reading. I am the goddess of reading. And this is what you need to do. And shockingly, that did not get any traction. Um, <laughs> that's not how you make friends and influence people. Um, but what that did was, and these were colleagues who I had a good relationship with, but that just immediately brought so much pushback that I said, maybe you should rethink your tactic. So fast forward to Tennessee, um, it wasn't as contentious, um, largely because I softened. Um, but even that, I felt like people were more willing to engage in conversation, but weren't really able or prepared or willing to like make movement in 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 the space. Um, so then I moved to Achieve, and when I was at Achieve, we also were the organization that housed the Next Generation Science Standards. Like the NGSS people sat next to me, so I mean there were two separate websites, but we Achieve really was the um, like the founder of the NGSS. So because I worked so closely with my science colleagues um, day by day, there just were more natural places for me to infiltrate <laughs> and talk about literacy in science. And so, but this time, because I had done this poorly so many other times, I took a listen more, talk less approach and just really sat down and said, well, what do you all, what do you expect kids to do in science? Like, what are the NGSS standards about? And what kind of, um, thinking, do you want them to be able to execute and demonstrate? What's the phenomenon, right? So really just trying to understand the science standards. And then I went to a meeting with the NGSS folks as a multi-state teacher meeting, and they were talking about science assessment. And they, the, they asked us to rate the best, most effective to least effective science assessment. I, we all got, we all got the same task. I looked at three of them, rated them. My ratings were completely backwards. So I rated mm. the one that had the most text as like the best, like this is great. They get to read everything and figure it out. The science people were like, so that's awful. And then they told <laughs> me on what they were looking for in a science assessment. Um, and that just prompted me just to dig deeper into scholars doing the work on disciplinary literacy, but I still wasn't making any traction. So when I got to Odell, um, they had gotten a massive grant to develop, ooh, basically full curriculum for high school literacy and ELA. And that was my main job, helping to get those units developed, got all green on reports, by the way, helping to get those units developed and build the accompanying teacher professional learning system. But attached to that grant, there was a side requirement that they had to produce 10 units interdisciplinary writing units. And this was like just a side project. And quite honestly, nobody really had time to take it seriously. When I first got there, my colleague said, we'll just write these. Like, 
<laughs> of course we can't. We're the, we're the reading people. We can just write these. And I looked around and I said, oh, we can't do that. <laughs> we can't do that. And so I went to my very, very, very smart, I mean, truly smart colleagues and said, guys, I don't think we should do that. And they go, Maya, of course, we are the reading people. Of course, we can write writing units for the disciplines. And I said, I don't think we can. And what happened was, honestly, two things happened. Because the main project took up so much of our time, we really didn't have the capacity to do the units. And so when, um, you know, when, when everybody was kind of like downtrodden and just buried in the work, I kind of swooped in and said, you know what, let me take these off the plate. But you have to agree to let me um, devise this system how I want to. So I will make sure this gets done, but in order, but you have to promise me, you will let me do it my way. And so I did it at a point where everybody was just so overwhelmed with work, they were like, okay, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> so this time what I did was I did not write the units. Instead, I looked back through my networks and found um, some incredibly brilliant people. Dr. Kristen Duncan, who is a professor of social studies education at Clemson University, and Dr. Kelly Chastain, who had been in my program at Vandy, and was the science coordinator when I was at the Tennessee Department of Ed, um, long, like science down to her socks. And I called the both of them and said, so I need a favor. And I said, I can pay you for this favor, but it's a big favor. And I explained what we want to do. And I said to them, I said, hey guys, I know how to get kids through text. I don't know content. I don't know what it is you want them to know in social studies and science. And I'm not even going to pretend that I know that, but my gut is telling me, if you can lead and drive from content, I can help you figure out how to get kids to read it and write about it. And so the three of us um, spent close to a year. Um, we, we did a lot of things like really to develop trust. And, I, and it took a lot of me saying, listen, I know I'm the English person. I know some of the things English people and reading people have done over the past 20 years. I am familiar with the implications of No Child Left Behind and what that meant for science and social studies. Um, but I'm, please believe me, no part of me wants to recreate that system which deprioritizes content. So um, we spent about a year, and uh, the three of us, reading about what is disciplinary literacy, how is it different from content area reading and writing, um, and really coming up with some key understandings, like what do we mean by text? And so I said to my colleagues, when I say text, I mean literally anything a child or a reader has to look at that has words and make meaning from. So I'm including maps, graphs, charts, data, that's all text. And there are a lot of aha moments. And when I said, when I'm talking about writing, I'm not talking about writing poetry and science. I mean, I guess you could if you want to, but Kind of seems not like a great use. Of wherefore art thou mitochondria? Um, yeah. <laughs> wherefore art thou? Exactly. And I said, but the only way I said students are either going to get information in two ways. They're either going to watch it or three ways. They're either going to listen to it, they're going to watch it, or they're going to read about it. And they're only going to show you what they know in two ways. They're either going to talk about it or they're going to write about it. I mean, I guess they could 
you know, act it out. But again, maybe not something we're gonna do all the time in like 11th grade chemistry. So once I kind of said to them, I'm thinking about this in terms of like receptive skills, like what's the information students receive and productive skills, like how they produce what they know. And the only way they're gonna produce it is by like writing about it or talking about it. I said, it seems to me, you would have an invest in, an interest in figuring out how to get them to do that well to fit your purpose. And so we had lots of like norming conversations around like, what do you mean by writing? What do you mean by text? And um, those are really, really good conversations. And so it ended up with them literally leading the direction and writing um, a really good framework for writing in the disciplines for both science and social studies. So once we, you know, we had a year of us, like as a small team coming to that understanding and I'm like, I'm in the background with my colleagues, like everything's good. Nothing's on fire. <laughs> nothing's on fire. Please don't send me an English person to help me. I don't need that. Um, and I, I said to, you know, um, Kelly and Kristen, I don't know content, populate your teams with the most brilliant people that you know. And so they went and they found um, five brilliant science teachers, five brilliant social studies, social studies teachers. In fact, one of them, Dr. Tiffany Patterson, that's how I know her. She was, yep, she was, she on, was a she guest. Was on yep. yep, she was a guest. That's how I met her. Um, and she's phenomenal. And so um, yes. we spent yes. more time, like as of now a big group talking about this whole project. And I just kept saying, you have to tell me, and I said to them, if you had to um, take time, money, and resources off the table. None of those things are, are um, um, limiting factors. What would you want students to do? In your best class, best case scenario, what would be like to you an ultimate expression of like your discipline? And so they went off, they came back and they came back with really interesting, cool things that they are never gonna learn to do in English class. So. Um, I remember Tiffany's was, you know, I would love it if students could read um, contemporary, you know, civics and um, social information and write a think piece that persuades an audience. And she goes, Maya, think about it. Think pieces are everywhere. Like that's a real world type of writing, right? Like people are writing these think pieces all the time to you know, persuade their audience to argue a case. And I would love it if my kids could write a think piece and publish it electronically. Um, one of my social, one of my science people said, climate change is real. Now, I don't know what they're talking about, but it's real. The science is really unwavering at this point, but you know, politics get in the way. I would love it if my high schoolers could write a policy brief intended to go to lawmakers about climate change and persuade them and argue why we have to have climate change legislation. So I want, I want kids to write a policy brief on climate change. Uh, another, another leader said, or content expert said, history is living, it's not dead. And she goes, every time I go to the museum, history is alive and so much of history deals with images and pictures as primary sources. And it's really important that students understand how to read images and be critical in their analysis of images as, as primary sources. It would be cool if students could understand how to group images thematically by historical content 
and then develop themes around their groupings and then put together a museum exhibit with section labels, item labels. And, you know, she goes, you know, when you go in the museum, you see like near, like at the beginning of the exhibit or in the room, there's that block of text that, um, that tells you what the exhibit's about. And so as they're giving me these ideas, I'm like, wow, those are cool. But I'm also thinking, man, in order to do that well, you really have to understand tone. Like if you're gonna write to a policy brief, you have to have a good understanding of tone. If you're gonna write like section labels because you're bound by space, you may only have like 300 words or 200 words or 50 words. You have to understand how to use language and be really crisp and clear to get a lot of information across in a very short you know, um, space. So as they're telling me what they want, my mind is naturally going, oh, that's tone. Oh, that's like developing a central idea and supporting it with details. Oh, that's understanding purpose and audience. Oh, that's being able to use um, like tier three vocabulary. Well, so like as they're talking is in my head, it's just translating, translating, translating. And so I said, okay. And I did not know what I was doing. Let me make this very, very clear. It's not like I had a master plan I was working from. No, no, no. I was, <laughs> we were really building this plan. We're flying it. And I'm like, well, they already gave us the money. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how this goes. And so what would end up happening is my content people, brilliant on content, and they would they write the units. Um, and I, what would happen is I would go behind them. And I don't want to say clean up. That's not, that's not quite what happened. I would go back and reread what they wanted for students to do. And I would say, you have them reading this. And I said, I've read it. I don't really understand it. And it took me, and I'm a good reader, they say, it took me, you know, four or five times to make my way through the science text. So is this what this text actually means? And this tech science person say, yes, Maya, it means that, or no, Maya, it doesn't mean that. Then we would have a conversation about it. And I would say, but I have a doctorate degree and all of my degrees are English and reading. I had a hard time making sense out of this text. So do you, what, what do you think is going to happen with students? And so then we would have conversations like that. And I would say to them as a novice, here is where I got confused. But because I'm a novice, I can also figure out pedagogically how to build in questions that scaffold to that understanding. So my content area colleagues were brilliant with the content, but didn't yet know how to design questions in a way that brought students to an understanding of text. Like they could ask questions about the content. They were really good at that. But I will say, if you want them to answer this really rich, juicy question, they're gonna need two or three questions and probably some discussion before that. And so they would come up with the, like the content and I would come and say, as the reading literacy person, here is a way to get kids into it and through it. And then when we started to design the writing part, it was the same thing. Like they were really, and I, this is an experience that I had. Like I had teachers who were great at assigning writing pieces. They would just say, write an analysis or, you know, write a lab report. And, and, and sometimes even give me the section, like a lab report has these five sections. But I, that they weren't always great at explaining to me like the function, the format, um, how to use tone in this space, like th those things were missing. So when my colleagues would say, I want them to be able to write this thing, then I would go back and think, okay, well, how would you get a student to not, not to 
end up with the thing, but design the process to get them to the thing. And so what ended up happening was just, in my, from my perspective, these really rich conversations between the content experts who know the content, who know what they want students to do, but don't quite have like the literacy pedagogy to get them there. And there's me who, according to all the degrees on the wall, I have the pedagogy to get them there, but I don't know the content. And so um, by me taking really a back seat and saying, you all drive this, but I can help figure out, like you're driving, but I'm gonna be in the back reading the map, right? I'm gonna tell you where to turn. I'm gonna tell you when we need to stop and get gas, but ultimately you're driving us to where we need to be. And those units were like the, the richest, most progressive, most innovative work thus far of my career. Um, and I'm sorry, am I, am I rambling too much? <laughs> no, everything you're saying is fantastic. Honestly, I have to tell you, my favorite thing of what you just said was when you were describing the student, basically student action projects that the mm -hmm. teachers wanted from them. And I think that that's so powerful because wanting students to do those things requires a study of literacy. When, you know, choosing the texts that are going to mm -hmm. model the way that an author sends an opinion to readers about whatever the content is and having to you know write a think piece or engage in any of those things that the teachers mm -hmm. were wanting to do they would need to see models of real authors doing that first to be able to do it successfully and i think the questions about literacy you were talking about would be a great way to really push that conversation with students and what mm -hmm. better way also to transfer <clears throat> that powerful student action into you know you, you said agency was one of your other big concepts and i was just thinking oh my God, you know, this is what we want from them. When they're out of school, when they're in mm -hmm. college, when they're in their adult lives, we want them to engage in this kind of activity to, you know, make the world a better place, not to sound, yes. you know, you know, corny. No, that's the point. You know, the world needs it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just love that they went there because a lot of times, you know, I think that content area teachers kind of um, can get a rap for like just wanting to cover content, but that's not true. You know, they want the kids to take the content mm -hmm. and do something bigger with it too. So I just love that. I love that. Completely agreed. And like to add, to add on to that, it's important for me that students have agency. So when they step into, and listen, wherever you go post-secondary, it should be your choice. Two-year college, four-year college, technical school, training school, really like do, this is, my aunt said to me, honey, this is not a dress rehearsal this is it. You don't get a do-over, right? Like whatever you're going to do, like this is it. So when students graduate, they have to be prepared to step on stage and do what they're going to do. There is no do-over. So um, I completely agree that the, our role is to prepare them to do that and to make the world they occupy a better place for them and the people that come after them. And so for me, it means whatever your next step is post-secondary, you should have the agency and the sense of self-efficacy that you could walk into that space of that new space of learning, open up the text and say, I may not know this, but I know how to conquer this and I know how to figure this out. And I don't think students are leaving school uh, 12th grade with that sense of confidence and agency that they can figure out text because they just really haven't been taught to figure out text outside of English and reading. And I, and I would tell like the team I worked with, <clears throat> this was a huge eye opener for me. And if I can find the book, I'll give you the name. When I learned that text literally functions differently in the disciplines, like it does not work the same, that just blew my mind. So a science text um, uses a process called nominalization, which is um, where you take 
so like in science, you know, they have really complex concepts. And sometimes the, fir the first time you explain a concept, a really complex concept, it may take you three, four, five words to explain what that concept is. You have to define it. But every time you refer to that concept, you're not going to write 15 words. You, you, you would never get anywhere. So in science text, there's this process called a nominalization or, yeah, I think that's right. I can look up the exact term, but where they take, after they introduce that concept, they define it the first time, they reduce it down to like a noun or an adjective that is unique to that. So like everything is kind of like, um, all the words, all, all the entire concept gets condensed mm -hmm. into one word. So the next time you see that one word, you realize that one word is about that body, that conceptual body of knowledge. Now imagine that those concepts being stacked over and over and over and over and over again. So by the time you get to the end of the paragraph, you may have six concepts that are now single words, but each single word really represents a definition that's between 10 and 30 words. How do you keep track of that, right? Like, so, you know, and in social studies text, <clears throat> author's position and perspective and role, that's what's important. We don't really teach that. I mean, we talk a lot about authors, but the role of the author takes a whole new dimension in a social studies text. So, but as a student, if you don't understand like how to get through that text, you're not, you're not prepared to engage in the world post-secondary. And I would honestly say you're not literate. I don't care what your test score said. You're not literate. And that is, um, that's a problem for me. And I feel like a lot of this kind of comes to the idea that for such a long time, literacy has been regarded as, as solely a cognitive process. Mm -hmm. One's ability to, to decode and to write words on a page. And, and that is true. It is a cognitive process, but, or, but it's mm -hmm. also a social practice, right? Like the way that different disciplines, that. the way the different disciplines construct knowledge and debate knowledge. And um, I love that you're even getting into like the way syntactically they, they write knowledge onto the page is different and unique. Um, and one of the, uh, one of my favorite highfalutin words um, is from James Paul G research and he calls it um, meta discursive awareness. And it's just this Ooh. idea that different groups and different domains talk, think, act, behave and believe in different ways. And once kids get hit to that and they start to realize the way that I construct an argument in my you know, science class is gonna be different than the way that I do in my history class that's when that stuff really starts to come alive. And kind of going back to that idea of, of agency, one of the reasons I love disciplinary literacy and bringing that into my practice is it feels authentic. It doesn't feel like kids are walking into our class and it's like, okay, history is um, open up your knowledge suitcase and I'm going to pour some stuff into it. And then you're going to walk out of class with that suitcase and you'll yeah. never see it again or use it again. You'll put it into your attic. But instead it's like, we're going to develop the habits of mind, the, the, the discursive norms, the, the social practices, the ability to not just think like a historian, but to argue, to critique, to evaluate like one too, or a scientist or a literary scholar. And it feels real. Kids are like, this stuff that I'm doing, I can use in my life. It's not, you know, uh, exactly. It's not Jeopardy trivia. Um, it is actually like sort of embedded in some sort of meaningful work. And it's, and it's not that knowledge is bad, it's that knowledge is being operationalized in, in ways that, is, that are authentic. So for sure, yeah. for sure. So I can tell, I mean, you just made me think about a story that I have not thought about in a long time. So hopefully you guys will indulge me, but it's completely about that. So Beautiful. when I was, 
when I moved to Las Vegas, <clears throat> I got my assignment and it was English, English, English yearbook. And I said, yearbook? Oh yeah, you're the last <laughs> hire, so you get yearbook. And so I said, okay. I mean, I was on yearbook in high school. How hard could yearbook be, right? So I get this yearbook class. Now at the middle school where I taught, yearbook was a two-year course. So most students joined in seventh grade and in eighth grade, they, um, they stayed that second year and they were like the editors and leaders of the class, right? So you always had some, um, a body of knowledge that was passed down. So you're not starting mm. from zero, which you need. If you've ever taught yearbook, you need that like multiple loop, right? So but I don't know any of this. I've never taught yearbook before. I come in the first day and the kids are like, Miss Daugherty, where's the ladder? And I'm like, what's a ladder? That's a theme here. Like I keep going to these jobs. <laughs> I'm like, this, the really important thing you need for the job. I'm like, what is that? So like, I'm not even joking. My very first day, I promise you, I looked in my room. I was looking for a ladder. And I'm like, what? I felt like Amelia Bedelia. I'm like, why do these kids want a ladder? And I'm so for real. And by the end of the hour, they were like, it should be in a drawer. And I'm like, this makes no sense. And so I said, what are you all talking about? And they go, the ladder is the layout for the book, which you create the year before. So a lot of a lot of Amelia moments, really confused. But so when I took over this class, the teacher before me, um man she ruled with a tight fist and the way she ruled her class so she was an honors English teacher and the only children allowed to be in your book were honors okay Buzzers. that I mean by year two that was completely gone by my because of my yeah. second year I said we're not doing this anymore I, and this is this, we're not for many reasons we're not doing this including like this this is an academic course and you it's not a you don't get the prize because you happen to be honors mm -hmm. and knowing some of the research on like race and gender and honors and discipline that, that went out, that went the way of the dodo, but she ruled with an honor fist. You can only you had to be an honors. You had to have a really high state, um, state assessment score. Um, you, oh, I saw the picture. I saw last year's book. There were no words in it. I'm not even joking. I said to the kids, where are the words? And they said, what do you mean where are the words? I said, this is a yearbook class. They said, we just take pictures. And I said, this doesn't make any sense. I said, well, who is, what's this child's name? Well, we don't know. I said, well, I'm 30. You're really not going to know in 20 years. Like, but this teacher was so afraid of having mistakes in the book. Mm. grammatical mistakes written mistakes i'm not exaggerating there there were only words i think like at this each section may have had a title and the, you had your name next to your picture but there were no captions there were no words that's why and, so <laughs> and so this is the class you know my first year that i've inherited and i said to them so this is an english class and you have to write so i my, my very first year <laughs> fighting with eighth graders they were like there are no words in this book. And I'm like, oh no, baby, there have to be words in this book. So by the second year, when I got like my, the first round of kids that were, that were mine, um, we had, I didn't know how to create a yearbook. So I went to a bunch of yearbook workshops. Um, some locally, I went to some like around the country, learned how to write captions, learn how to write copy, learn how to write leads, you know, just like trying to like drinking from a fire hose. And I brought as many of my kids with me to every local yearbook um, workshop in the city. So if there was a yearbook workshop, we're going on Saturday. Uh, you didn't have to go, but most kids want to go. And they just, 
got, I mean, it was, they, they were hearing from like high school yearbook staffs and other middle school staffs and teachers. And it was just these really rich camp experiences for kids who had never been allowed to write words in a book. Uh, so we set off and, you know, I start, you know, I like having achievable goals and small bite-sized things. So we learn how to write captions and we learn how to write leads. And so we begin writing, you know, in this book. Yearbook is a lot of work. So if no one's ever been a yearbook advisor, it is, it, it is a lot of work. So you have to create the book. You have to manage the pictures. You have to sell the book. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are so many things you have to do. And I was also a full-time English teacher. And so by year three, I looked around and I said, this isn't going to work for me. I need someone who does marketing because we have a good book, but we didn't sell out all the books, which doesn't make sense because the book is good. So I went back to the counselor and I said, at this point, the criteria to get in your book had changed. So I went to all the sixth grade teachers and said, give me any child who you think would have an interest in your book, but I have to be able to trust them. So they do have to be trustworthy because they're out, they're away from me for about 80% of the period. So don't give me the child that is going to leave the classroom and run away and never, and, and like be gone. So I do have to be able to trust them. The literacy I can teach them. They don't need to be perfect or honors because guess what? I can teach any seventh or eighth grader how to write a caption. So second year, I go to the counselor and say, I'm going to add a component to your book, marketing. Why? Because Miss Daughtery didn't have the time to sell the books. <laughs> and I had a different kind of criteria for marketing. And I said, I need the most popular kids. Children will buy books from their most popular peers. I want the cheerleaders. I want the class clowns. I'm for real. I want the leaders. I want the most popular children. And so um, when I could, because for your book, you had to apply. And so when I would do the school announcements, I would say, you know, newspaper and yearbook. And there's this new team, this marketing team. And um, we found the most popular children. And I brought them in and said, here's the deal. Your job is to sell the books. Our job is to create the books, but if you don't sell them, you don't get an A. That's just, that's just how that works. Like you have to sell them, which means you also have to come up with a marketing plan. You, so I hope my marketing students, they were, they were like, I think one to two every year, they had to develop a marketing plan and bring it to me. And I would review it and give it back to them and say, nope, this isn't going to work. And I would ask them questions like, well, where do kids congregate? And they had to write scripts out to do cold calls. I mean, like literally they had to develop. So it became a lightweight English class because they had to develop a marketing plan and they were expected to execute the plan. They said they were going to do, this is your plan. <laughs> so with uh, the other students, you know, we're still continuing. And at this point, my children are writing copy. I mean, like full articles and they're getting, they are citing Tinker. They're like, the principal got rid of my story on teen pregnancy. And in the, in the, the Tinker case, it says we have <laughs> <laughs> That's authenticity. Yeah, these are eighth graders. Okay, seventh and eighth graders. And I, I was like, I know, but sometimes, hey, that just, sometimes the bear gets you, sometimes you get the bear. My dad would say, sometimes you're the pigeon, sometimes you're the statue, but listen, we're going to win some, we're going to lose some. So at this point, I have like three very different teams. And each of these teams, I had a yearbook team, a newspaper team who did like breaking news in middle school, breaking news in middle school, and um, my, my marketing team. And so all three of these teams are uh, operating at the same time in the same period. So like I said, your, your second year, 
the eighth graders become editors and that you didn't just be an editor because you were an eighth grader. And I framed it to my children like this. This is a leadership position, leaders lead. If you want to learn how to lead, I can teach you how to lead, but this is not a position in title only. You have real and distinct responsibilities. And so they had to apply to be editors and they would you know, be chosen to be editors. And they did have real responsibility. And so my editors were responsible for the latter, the copy. They had to review all copy before it came to me. Do not give me junk copy. I don't, I mean, of course I did a lot of editing, but they were responsible for reviewing copy. They were responsible for teaching many workshops on leads and on captions and on editing photographs. They were responsible for making sure that every child's picture was in the book three times. Children don't buy a book they're not in. It took us years to be able to get a system for that figured out. Um, and they were also responsible for keeping their staff engaged and excited. Now, as the teacher, that ultimately is my job. But if you're going to be the leader of this team, keeping your team's morale high, that's a real thing. And so they would come to me and say, we want to do like a small pizza party or we want to do a celebration. And so I would say to them, leaders lead. Tell me how you're going to keep your teams engaged. Well, one year, we I I, I brought a and also by this year in my in my yearbook class, I had I had a much more diverse class by race, much more. And I had at least one child that had an IEP. That had never happened before. Um, when I took over this class, it was all white, no students with IEPs. And by the time I left, it was diverse by race and by, um, by IEP status and 504 status, because I can teach you how to do this. So, but one year when, when I put the class together, it wasn't great. So there was one child one year, I won't say her name, though I do remember it, who wreaked havoc. Oh, this child caused so much drama. This child caused drama, 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 drama. And she would start rumors with these children and then run over here and spread rumors to the other. I mean, like it was like real housewives of middle school. And honestly was a headache because I could not figure out how to get this one child to stop like disrupting my apple cart. So she ends up graduating. But that year, my seventh graders who were going to be editors the next year, they came, they came to me and they said, Miss Daughtery, we have a problem. And I said, oh, we do, huh? Don't pray tell, what's our problem? <laughs> there was too much drama this year in yearbook, Miss Daughtery. We don't like drama. So we have to make sure we don't have this next year. That's one thing. The second thing they said was, we had people this year, Miss Daughtery, who weren't very good at following directions. They didn't write good copy. They didn't write good captions. And so they're using the language of the discipline to say, we've done, and these, and these I will be very clear. My children were not being like, just rude and mean to other kids. Truly, they weren't, which I know can happen in middle school. They can't, I did not tolerate that. And I created an atmosphere where everyone is welcomed and this is a space for everybody. But there were issues with some of the quality because of all the drama. So they, come to, they came to me and they said, we need to write better captions and copy and um, we need to rethink how people get into your book. And so I'm really sitting at my, because we would have editor meetings. They, we would have them, I think, what, once a week. And they, they would come to me. They had to have an agenda. 
and they would run down all the things on the agenda and tell me what I had to do to make sure they didn't have what they needed. And so I go, okay. I said, well, you guys know the rule. The rule was you don't get to come to me with a problem without a solution. Why? Because Miss Daughtery is busy. I can't figure out your <laughs> problems and my problems. Okay. And so I said, okay, so what's the solution? And they said, well, we thought about that. <laughs> well, tell me what you thought. And they said, well, we all know how to solve the drama problem, but we think you should do a better job of talking to the counselor. I said, okay, fair, fair point, fair point. But we would like to run a yearbook camp. And I said, you want to do what? And by this point, my kids have been to like some yearbook workshops and camps around the city. I said, you want to do what? They said, yeah. They said, we want to make sure we choose people based on their qualifications not just because they applied. So we have to know that they have some basic understandings of grammar and layout and design. So we can, you know, we can uh, make sure that the book is good. And they said, so we had came up with a system. I said, well, tell me about the system. And so, and this is not a joke. My, um, my outgoing, so my new editors for gonna be for seventh grade and my outgoing eighth grade editors, they got together on like a weekend or after school and designed a whole yearbook camp. And they said, so this is going to take 90 minutes. So we need to do it over lunch. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what is it? Well, the news, the newspaper editor came to me and she goes, grammar is really important for yearbook, Miss Daughtery. We can't have mistakes in the newspaper. So what I want to do is take three of our articles that weren't published this year, go back through them and put in a bunch of grammatical errors in the copy. And we're gonna give people 10 minutes to work independently at their computer to make the copy good and see if they can edit the copy. They can copy edit. I said, that sounds like a reasonable task. Uh, my marketing child said, Ms. Daughtery, you have to not, uh, what did she say? Um, you can't be afraid to be in marketing. You have to be able to talk to anybody. So for marketing, what I want to do is put them in teams and it'll be during lunch and give every team 10 minutes to make an announcement to the whole lunchroom and go talk to tables and see who can talk to strangers and who can't, and who's willing to embarrass themselves and who's not. Huh, that seems reasonable because that's what you do every day, Ashley. And my yearbook children, like three yearbook editors, they came to me and they said, your book is really complex. You have pictures, you have layout, you have captions, you have copy. So what we want to do, this is really before, you know, tech, tech is like it is, right? So they took big sheets of butcher paper. They said, you know, there are a lot of pictures we couldn't use because, you know, the, the quality was bad or, you know, just whatever reason. We want to take some of the junk pictures we didn't use and give them a folder with junk pictures. And then we're gonna put people, cause it said, Ms. Daughtery, your book is a team, is a team class. So nobody works alone ever. So you're gonna work in pairs or in threes and each pair or three is going to get a folder with, this, with photographs we didn't use. And you're gonna have 10 minutes to arrange them on the paper in the form of a layout, give it a title and write a caption for each photograph. And they even had a schedule. They had a rotation schedule. They had literally worked out the time. They had the task. They came to me and they, I said, well, how are you going to know who did it well? Oh, we developed a rubric. And they said, and so when everyone gets done, we'll take everybody's work 
and we'll come together as a as a staff and we'll discuss everybody's work. And they said, and we'll have people put their names on the back. So we won't be discussing people. We'll discuss their work. This is what my children, I'm not even, I did not come up with any of this. And I said, well, what do you need from me? And they said, can you order us pizza? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be lunchtime and we would like to eat. <laughs> we, <laughs> I, I am not joking. This is what my seventh graders and eighth graders can. So they knew the discipline. They knew the expectations for writing, copy, uh, captions, leads, section headers. They knew how to copy edit. Why? Because I have been teaching them this at this point for years. They knew the culture of the class. The fact that they can identify, we don't have a class that has full, is full of drama, but, and we did this year, we can't do that again. That means Ms. Daughtery, you have to rethink how you're asking about who belongs in this class in terms of like their ability to work with others. Um, they also uh, understood that leaders lead and you don't come to me with a problem without a solution. So when they came to me and said, we'd have a better way to determine who's going to be a good fit in terms of their work. And we can't think of a better way to do it than to have them do the job. And then we can decide as a staff. I was honestly like so impressed of my children, but also I thought this is the result of five years of me like laying these bricks down, not just on the content and the copy. Remember, I got a book that had no words in it when I took it over. And by the time I left, our yearbook sponsor was saying, you need to enter your books in some competitions. I did not because I was too afraid to, but she, um, Judy Allen, she said, you need to enter your books. She was an amazing, amazing like sponsor from Justin's. Um, so my point is those children, I can say with certainty, left my, left my yearbook class, my English class with a high sense of autonomy, a sense of self-efficacy, and knowledge about the discipline and were engaged in real world tasks. And that sort of culture extended beyond that yearbook class. That is how I ran my classes. Now, all my classes weren't project-based, but you were gonna leave me with a sense of, I can do this and I can figure this out. And I, I know how to read and navigate text. And if I don't write well, I can try it again and that's okay. I am just in awe of that entire situation that you just described to me and I'm you know I'm an elementary teacher but teacher but I'm feeling so inspired by it because the things you said in the beginning you know we were talking disciplinary literacy or even transdisciplinary from the example you just gave and then student agency and even though there wasn't technically necessarily a lot of text they were engaged with when you were mentioning the camps and the workshops mm -hmm. although that's not technically a text that's a resource that they're having to navigate in the same way or a different way but similar to the way they would use a text as a resource and I'm just thinking, oh, they did have a text. I didn't mention that, but they had a yearbook textbook. So we actually we I did not teach yearbooks. I said I have to get a book, which meant like I ordered my first year yearbook text, and they did. We moved through that text as necessary. But you just I mean everything was integrated so beautifully there for them to engage in some real world action, like you said, and leave with that sense of agency. And again, all those skills that you taught them in that course can transfer to like much bigger things in their life where they would use those mm -hmm. skills. I mean, marketing, editing, writing to communicate, all of that is just amazing. And as an elementary person, I'm thinking, you know, I teach fifth grade. But we have a lot of different initiatives in my school. Um, specifically, we, we have one where we're trying to reduce plastic waste right now. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, what an opportunity, you know, feeling inspired from you to kind of assign these different roles or groups to get involved with these things and have some agency in that way too. So I really appreciate that story. 
I mean, I would say do it. The worst that can happen is they don't do it well, but that's okay. They will do something. And number number one, they'll do, they will do better than you think, hands down. Like children will exceed your expectations all the time if you give them clear direction, clear purpose, a clear focus, and you let them know what you expect them to do. They will rise, they really will. They will rise to the expectation. And if it doesn't they get passionate and they want and they want to do meaningful work. Children want to do meaningful work. They do not want to just sit around and hear someone lecture to them all day. Absolutely. But not only that, like as a teacher, the, my first year teaching yearbook, I didn't know what I was doing. This took me five years to build that program. Mm-hmm. So even for you, like as an educator, take the plunge. And by your second year, you can say, man, that worked really well. But next year is going to be better when I do or next year. I'm going to do this instead of that. So once you kind of get over the, I mean, at least for me, it was this internal sense of, oh, can I do this? I just learned to ask for forgiveness and not permission. I, well, I'll, just, I'll just tell you in the end, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one of the things that, that really stood out to me from that story is the contrast of high expectations. You could say that the first yearbook teacher, because she ruled with an iron fist, because she only let in the honors kids, she mm-hmm. had high expectations. But I think in reality, she had very low expectations of what the kids are capable of. Whereas for you, it sounds like your expectations were really Mm -hmm. high, but that's because you expected them to do meaningful, authentic work that does require scaffolding and does require training and discipline and work and all those things. But when it's coming from a place of purpose and meaning and autonomy and agency, like those high expectations are setting kids up to gain valuable skills, to become passionate, to do things that Mm -hmm. impact their community. It's not having high expectations to, I don't know, establish a sense of domination and authority on the side of the teacher. Because I feel like when you hear those words of high expectations or like rigor, it can come off as though it's like, I am the teacher and you will take me seriously as opposed to this discipline is meaningful. And I want you Mm -hmm. to see how you can buy into it or how you can get an invitation to sort of become a mini practitioner. And so I just love that setup that you put forth of like high expectations. I'm using air quotes because we don't have video. And then the high expectations that you have for your students. And the fact that I teach, I come come from working with high school and now I'm working with eighth eighth graders. Let me tell you, the fact that you had eighth or seventh, eighth graders that were doing that work is everything just like in addition to all the disciplinary stuff the executive functioning that goes into that the organization Mm -hmm. the scheduling i mean like i think i would have a hard time doing that stuff so that's just so cool to hear that they had to do it to be honest because my first year i thought i can't do this this is so Mm. much work that necessity is the mother of invention i really yearbook is so much work I thought I can't do it. And I could see like on the one hand, why the teacher before me had the practice she did, it reduced her workload. But I thought, number one, that's not fair to kids. But number two, kids are short, not stupid. And I can tell (laughs) you what the expectation is. Like if I say to you, your job is to sell a hundred yearbooks, figure out how, that's not an unrealistic expectation. I can say to you, your job is to figure out how to write captions. Here's how you do it. I'm going to model it. We'll do it together. You're going to work in teams to revise each other's work. Oh, and by the way, this is a real book. Your friends are going to read this. So if you have mistakes, everyone's going to see it besides me. Mm-hmm. Right? So you, you, and you can do that with a sense of courtesy, compassion, kindness, empathy, and care. So I, I have a big believer in I'm, do not be cruel to children. I 
I, nothing gets me angrier faster than adults who are cruel to children. And the teacher before me, like I said, kids were afraid of her. My children were never afraid of me, but they did respect me because I can treat you like a human, like a person with compassion and care and still say, and you're going to do this really hard thing. You're going to do it. And I'm going to help you along the way, but I, you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So. No, that that's beautiful. So, so kind of dipping back into our concepts. Um, I am curious about this idea of, of text. So a lot of the, the work that we do, especially lately, we have like a pop-up workshop series that we're doing about multimodal composition. So this idea that texts aren't mm-hmm. just, you know, print or prose that you see in a novel. Texts are different based on the discipline, based on the modality. And it mm-hmm. sounds like your kids were doing an incredible amount of multimodal composition. So I, I'm kind of curious um, about what are some of your, what were some of the big realizations you had? And you shared a little bit about the science and history examples, but I'm just kind of curious about what do you see as a way that teachers could begin to think about text in a way that's responsive to the discipline and to bring them into their classrooms? So thinking of text right now, I am really vibing on Nate's new definition of text. I know I'm like such a super nerd, like who vibes on Nate, but um, the new uh, definition <laughs> to me prioritizes uh, comprehension um, in the definition itself. And so it's that this is the new definition. Reading comprehension is, a, is meaning making with text, a complex process shaped by many factors. To comprehend, readers must engage with text in print and multimodal forms. I'm going to come back to that. Employ personal resources that include foundational reading skills, knowledge, language, and motivations and extract, construct, integrate, critique, and apply meaning in activities across a range of social and cultural contexts. So one of the reasons um, that I really am just vibing with the 2026 proposed NAEP updates is because of how they define text, talking about the the definition itself talks about the multiple modes of text, like static print, non-linear hypertext images videos so nape and those are examples but nape acknowledges that text or the printed word shows up in many 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 ways and students need to understand how to navigate multiple ways that text shows up in ways that reflect real life reading requirements i'm an english teacher I started off in engineering. I graduated with a degree in English and political science. I'm a nerd. Look, I could read the classics all day and be happy. <laughs> I really could. But I also completely understand that in, you know, two, what year are we? 2021? The, the year, the, the time has lost all meaning after last year. Whatever year. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, meaning. for sure. That, you know, there are so many ways that readers have access to information, printed information. So I love that NAEP draws on those those multiple modes. NAEP is also, um, I'm gonna say more keenly defining informational text. Like they have uh, changed the reporting categories away from informational text to science context and social studies context and text. So Mm -hmm. there's some big changes coming in NAEP and they are, like leaning into with real, real um, force, this idea that text is different in different disciplines and students need to learn how to read um, 
text in different disciplines. Um, they also tied text to uh, cultural traditions and social practices. So, and that's something else that I agree with, right? So the printed word reflects something about who we are at a point in time. And that there's something really powerful about that, right? Like when you, when you read something, you're reading not just that text, but it's a representation of who, of who society was at a moment in time. And so in that, um, <clears throat> with that comes just a lot of, um, a lot of like variables, you know, race, class, gender, geographic location, syntax, culture, language, um, and all these things kind of like mixed together to give the current reader um, something about what time and space and life was like at the time that text was written. So text really is the best record we have of our existence as humans. And, it, it, and since we've been writing text, people have been reading text and text has been accumulating. So I love the idea that Nate is acknowledging that text um, is tied to culture and is tied to society. And there, at least in their, in their definitions, there is an, is an importance attached to understanding the role that text plays for us as a society. Um, I, I am not a believer in censoring text. I'm very anti-censoring text. Um, some of the things I've seen around the country just honestly have me sad and dismayed. Um, Same. And that does not mean I agree with all ideas that show up in text, but I really feel like if you're not learning how to wrestle with ideas that are different from yours, either to broaden yours mm -hmm. or to help you refine yours even better, then we're not, we're, we're not preparing a society that is pluralistic and ready to live with each other. Um, and I read all kinds of, the mm -hmm. texts I read in high school, some of them I'm, I know in some places will be banned today. I just thought, I mean, I know they are. Like I read Beloved in high school and I know there are places today that ban Beloved. I know there are places right now that would ban uh. their eyes for watching God. I read James Baldwin in high school. I know there are places that ban James Baldwin. And it, um, it, it makes, that makes me sad because when you, I read something earlier this week that talked about how writing, the act of writing is when one writes, you actually make your ideas better. So there's something about taking the ideas that rattle around in your head and putting them down that forces you to like clarify and understand them better. And I would say when you read things, especially as you grow in your reading and reading becomes more nuanced and complex, you're also growing in your thinking from, so from both ways. So I'm a big believer in um, letting teachers be the professionals in the classroom and choose the texts that um, they believe are best for their students at that time. Fully understanding that's an imperfect system. I mean, fully understanding the trade-off is that that's an imperfect system, but that's a better system than there, there being like broad stroke restrictions on text, which is restrictions on thought mm -hmm. and idea. Which, Well, I mean, it's a system that, that aligns with the vision of pluralistic democracy that we mm -hmm. are supposed to be aspiring to mm -hmm. as a country. Like we, there's a difference between endorsing ideas and exposing people to ideas that are different than their own. And I think that 
it is such a disservice when students don't even have the opportunity to engage with perspectives or viewpoints or ideologies that don't align with their beliefs. Um, I mean, even my most formative experiences in my undergrad degree were where I ended up in a class that I, I didn't really necessarily have an intention of taking, but presented to me perspectives and ideas that mm -hmm. I hadn't grappled with previously. The first time I read Toni Morrison was when I took a 300 level mm. Toni Morrison class in college. That was all oh my God. books. <laughs> I, I'd heard of her and I was like, we, we, we had to take, well, sorry, we didn't read all of her books. Sorry. I meant like the, the course was only her from her work, not all of her books. Oh that would have been a much harder class. Um, but it, getting, we had to do an author study and, and reading her work, having never been exposed to it previously, it really made me think about things in ways that, mm -hmm. that I never would have conceptualized or even begun to understand. And obviously there's only so far that, that reading can take us, but, but things about mm -hmm. you know, the black experience that I, in my very white canonically centered, um, or I guess like Western centered um, curriculum, I, I just didn't see. And when we're given an opportunity to explore and grapple with those different ideas and perspectives, I think it, it, makes, it makes the conversations better. It makes us better as human beings. And um, like you said, it's very sad that, that those opportunities are being sort of restricted mm -hmm. or removed. Um, Cause I, I think it, it's only, can only help make us better. And stronger I agree. And, and I will pathetic. say, I say to people all the time, the text doesn't change you do. And so like I've read the first time I read beloved. Yeah. Oh man. I was in 10th grade. So when I was in eighth grade in the summer between eighth and ninth grade, I had a friend, her name was Maya too, actually. And Maya and Lisa, and they read the bluest eye. And we, I mean, I, hashtag nerd. I mean, it just nerds, nerds, nerds. And Maya, this is such a good book. So I picked up the bluest eye. I didn't really understand it, but I did make it to the last page, right? Toni Morrison is very complex. So I was feeling like, I mean, I was really, Definitely. I had a high sense of self-importance and like, yes, I have read Toni Morrison. So because I am who I am, I was <laughs> like, well, let me go to the next one. So I picked up Beloved in 10th grade by myself and I read it. I did read all the words. At the end of the book, I didn't even know there was a ghost. I mean, I had literally no idea what was going on in that book. I didn't even know there was a ghost. I, I truly. And so when I got to either 11th or 12th grade, um, it was assigned reading at my high school. But by that point, I think I had read it like one, one and a half times. So I did know a little bit. Right. And so by that, that, that class guided reading, it finally made sense. And so since then it has become my favorite Toni Morrison book. I read it about once every three to four years. So I've read it multiple times. I picked it up last year during the pandemic. I mean, I was sitting at home, what else was I going to do? What else am I going to do? And I read it again and I still have my original high school copy. So it has like years of notes. It's like, um, a well-seasoned cast iron pan, right? Just, just years of notes, okay, <laughs> on top of each other. And so I literally can track my thinking starting in high school. And even this last time when I read it, it took me over two weeks to read a book. I have read multiple times because the book, the words are the same. The book didn't change. I did. It's a very different experience reading that book as a 40-year-old Black woman than it is as a 16 year old black girl, even what I'm paying attention to is different. And so I'm grateful that I had teachers that exposed me to such a rich body of literature beginning in high school, because now as an adult, I can return back to those books. And I said, I wanna make it very clear. I said, rich 
body of literature. That does not mean they only gave me white canonical texts. So I want to make that really, really clear. I was exposed to a rich body of literature that as an adult, I can go back to. And because I have evolved and changed, those same books take... Um, have different meaning for me. Yeah. And that's that there's something really powerful about yeah. that. Right. So I'm a big defender of text, um, publicly and privately. And, uh, I'm a big believer in students and I'm a big believer that what we do matters. If children graduate and they are not literate, um, we have done our, them as individuals in our society, a huge, a grave disservice and so, like I said, I've been doing this same work for 20 years. I've been thinking about the exact same problems for 20 years, exact same challenges, just from different seats. Now I'm in an assessment seat or in a, in a, in a, in that NWEA, we're an assessment organization, but I'm still thinking about the same thing, guys, how do I get children to be more literate? And if, if, if I'm in conversations, all of my colleagues know, I say it all the time. If, if we're not talking about how children become more literate as a result of me being here, why am I in this meeting? And so like, just, I'm so driven to improving literacy outcomes for children in this country. And by children, I mean children, black children, brown children, rural children, immigrant children, uh, emergent bilinguals, middle-class children. That's all the time. The kids who need to be beloved are middle-class white kids. Okay. <laughs> That's who needs to read James Baldwin. Okay. <laughs> They need to Speaking read that, as right? one, yes. So I, I just <laughs> sure. am yeah. deeply committed to improving systems and conditions so that students um, deepen and grow in their literacy and they leave better than when they got to us. If we're not doing that, we really missed the entire point. Mm -hmm. That's so well said. Mm -hmm. And I just was, was going to say one of the things that I, I love, you know, obviously we've just had this conversation and I, I, I quasi know you through the weird Twitter world. Um, but one of the things that I've, I've picked up um, just based on our interactions is that um, part and parcel with that desire you have to help improve the, the conditions um, of literacy, instruction and pedagogy and curriculum is that you strike me as a person who is way more concerned and curious about looking for questions than you are endorsing the like the way the truth and the oh, light yeah. here is this one method this one tool this yeah, one strategy because yeah I, I feel like that is one of the things that frustrates me the most uh and you know I think it's algorithmically programmed to show up on mm -hmm. our timelines the most because well, that's the just the way that you know, evil social media <laughs> empires were but yeah for sure for sure but so I do I do really appreciate and that is that is one of the reasons why um, I was so excited to bring you on is, is I'm always excited to meet people who are more curious and passionate than they are entrenched in one sort of perspective. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, is there, is there any reason while well, we have like a few minutes left, is there any reason why you, you feel like you are that way? Does it just come from your passion to help kids or the fact that you've had such a wide birth of experiences that you have never had the opportunity to get entrenched in one perspective? Like, what do you think that is? Like, where does that come from that openness? So the thing I'm dogmatic about is that um, students being able to read and write and communicate well when they graduate, that's a non-starter. That's non-negotiable. Yeah. My job is to help children become more literate, students become more literate. And like I said, that's all children. That's all children. We do a huge disservice to our LGBTQ students in ways that we didn't even get into and the text they have access to. So by all children, I mean, all children are special education children. So I am um, 
dogmatic about the role is to make sure that students leave literate. Everything else is worthy of a conversation, right? So I know I have colleagues who believe in a balanced literacy approach. I do not. I know I have colleagues who believe in a whole language approach. I do not. And I'm very, very clear that we need to use a science-based um, and backed approach to reading instruction. That's the, that right now, that's the best tool we have to make sure that students are prepared to engage with text in more complex ways as they grow throughout the grades. Um, and I'm pretty deeply entrenched in that, but that's, I'm, that's worthy of a conversation, right? Um, I deeply believe that learning vocabulary is important. Shocker, if you don't know the words, you can't read the text, right? But I'm very open to all the many, many, many ways we can get children to expand their vocabularies. Um, I'm really passionate about the role that knowledge plays in comprehension. What is open for conversation is how we do that, what knowledge yep. and what does it mean to build knowledge? What is knowledge? So there, there certainly are places where I have um, deeply rooted beliefs when it comes to literacy. But other than that, like, let me, I tell my colleagues all the time, number one, the best thing I did was um, the, the, the people who I hired to work on my team, they're all much smarter than me. And I'm not just saying that. The best thing I did was hire them. And I said, because I need people who can push my thinking and who are smarter than me. If I can't figure, if I have figured this out, I promise you, I would not be in this meeting with you all. I promise you, <laughs> I will be on my multi-million dollar yacht. Okay, probably sailing, it's winter is coming. Um, probably like the Southern hemisphere somewhere warm. Like if I had found, if I had found a silver bullet to do this, I wouldn't be here. I would be cashing my checks. There is no silver bullet, right? There are a body of practice that we can practice and try and reflect on as, as, um, as practitioners and as masters of our craft and decide what worked, what didn't, what were the conditions, um, who did it work for, what other questions should I be asking, what do I do next, how do I use assessment, right? So um, the things I'm unwavering about, I'm unwavering about, how we get there, I often feel like it's open to a conversation. I also grew up in a really literate house. My mom was a reading specialist. <laughs> there you go. And Apples and trees. School, right. <laughs> so like, I mean, like literally like my, my very first baby niece was born um, September 19th. We have read to her every night. Like my sister is a dentist. I'm a reading teacher. We read to little baby every night and she's what, six weeks old. I mean, so I came from a household that was very literate and prioritized literacy. But then when I started teaching, I, I didn't even go into my first couple of years. I taught in Detroit at a school that was in a very low income neighborhood. Many of my parents were still struggling and growing in their ability to read. And it was um, very shocking to me. And when I first taught in that school and saw how many of my middle schoolers and then my high schoolers really could not get through text. I, I didn't believe it at first. It didn't make sense to me. And by my the end of my second year, I said, I have to get a reading specialist degree. I have to figure out how to get the kids to read. Like you're in 10th grade and you can't read. You can't figure out what this word is. So, um, and that sense of curiosity about how do I get kids to read better? How do I get them to express what, what they think and what they've read and writing and then in speech? 
um, those have been questions I've been um, answering since uh, since I graduated undergrad. And I, every every day I have new questions and I end up in different rabbit holes like, hey guys, we can try it like this and report back and reflect on it, see what worked and see what didn't. And but because of that, there's no room to be dogmatic. There just isn't. Yeah. No, really, that's why you're so fantastic. You're such a learner and a grower. You just, you have the questions and you go and you figure it out and you and you call upon all the people around you that can help figure it out. And that's that's what an, being an educator is. And that's what we're trying to teach our kids to do. That's amazing. I yeah. would love if I ever have a chance to observe either of your classrooms. I'm sure you, I mean, just from this conversation, you seem like you're both super dedicated, amazing teachers. So if you're ever open to it, I would love to come learn from you and what you're doing with your kids. And I'm not just saying that, that would make me very, very happy. <laughs> I would love that. I would love you to come watch me and, and school me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be fantastic. I'm sure that- um, Come and help me do even better. <laughs> the conversation that would emerge after, I'm sure would, I would learn even more. So I, anything to continue this conversation. However, um, we are, I think, getting close to wrapping up just because I want to be respectful of your time. So if people want to um, get some more wisdom nuggets from you, um, where would they go? Um, where can people connect and, and find you and your work? Um, the, well, the easiest place is Twitter. So that's the easiest place. And uh, my Twitter handle is D. ST for Delta Sigma Theta, my sorority. So DST, the number six, the letter N01, which for most people makes no sense. But if you're a Delta, it makes complete sense to you. So uh, DST6N01, that's my Twitter handle. Um, well, also, I can be contacted at NWEA, um, but that email address is really long. So um, I suggest you find me on Twitter and just we can put it on the show notes. Can... Oh, that's even better. Yep. Perfect. Awesome. So thank you so much for, for joining us. It was, a, it was a lovely conversation. I, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning That Transfers.